Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Сегодня вступает Привет, в силу это Навальный. В Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... Годом вас. С новым веком. Well, I've said it before and I'll say it again in the immortal words of Omar Little. You come at the king, you best not miss. Exactly two months after staging an armed insurrection and an aborted march on Moscow, Fokker mercenary leader Yevgeny Prigozhin died in an airplane crash in Russia that looks like anything but an accident. So what does this apparent hit on a once powerful oligarch reveal about the Putin regime? Stick around because I've got just the guests to help us unpack it all. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s historic and trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from across the Atlantic in Lithuania's enchanting capital city, Vilnius, is my old friend Constantine Edmund, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle and the former director of the BBC's Russian service. Welcome back, Kostya. It's always great to see you. Congratulations on being declared a foreign agent this week. It appears we both appear together on Deutsche Welle uh, to talk about this topic. Well, you know, great people come to be other great places and thank you for the congratulations. And great and loving my friends. Yes, and you know what? Um, a lot of my friends are thinking. Finally, you've got the certification. But very, very, very happy for you. So, um, a few more details, and what I when when we look at the Prigozhin hit, a few more details that caught my eye on what what I view essentially as a mob hit masquerading as a plane crash. In addition to Prigozhin, Wagner's top commander Dmitry Utkin was also killed. Um, just hours before the crash, Prigozhin's close ally, General Sergei Sidovikin was fired as the head of the Russian Air Force um, as news of the crash broke. And then just, just hours before Putin was on television, giving the Hero of Russia Award to Russian soldiers, an award he bestowed on Prigozhin himself just a year ago. The, the optics seem to be very well uh, choreographed. Kostya, is there any doubt in your mind that this was anything but a targeted assassination? It is a murky story and I don't know whether we will full details anytime soon, maybe never. Uh but um although it's not yet clear what really happened. I mean all the details are not yet clear. But let me put it like that. Uh it's either Putin showing that he's really quote unquote strong or it is those people that did it who actually think that Putin is so weak that he wouldn't mind. Personally, I suppose that uh, this was a very, very public uh, execution of 10 Russian citizens, including three crew on this plane, mm -hmm. uh, by uh, Putin. Well, let me be pretty direct. Whether it is a ball, whether it is a missile, it is definitely Putin's revenge. Whether it is too little, too late, that's a different question. But I do think that it is it bears all hallmarks of a hit 
ordered or executed uh, by the Kremlin. And I actually want to add one thing, the fact that Putkin also died in this country mm -hmm. actually means that in a real sense, this story of the Wagner uh, private military company is over because it was Putkin who created it. Right. It was he who had the nom de guerre Wagner. Yes. Because of his uh, penchant for, you know, Nazi paraphernalia. He was a big fan of Nazi Germany. Uh, and lots of people do not realize that Prigozhin was a fairly late comer to uh, the whole Wagner business. He was the financier who was designated to put finance uh, this uh, outfit, but it was created by the GRU. It was created by people from the GRU, and Utkin slash Wagner was at its head. So, yes, it is the end of the Wagner story as we know it, because everyone in the leadership who had anything to do with it is gone now. Yeah, and what I my understanding, Kostya, and maybe you could add a little bit to this, it's my understanding that the reason Prigozhin had flown back to Af to Russia from Africa, and therefore why he was on that flight from Moscow to St. Petersburg, is because he wanted to stop a GRU takeover of Wagner, uh, and especially their operations in Africa. Do you know anything about that? Uh, I know what was published in the media. Um, of course, as you can imagine, although me, I am a foreign agent, but my uh, powers of uh, connection are not unlimited. So I, I do not have an inside line to Mr. Averyanov, head of special operations for what used to be the GRU now, I think it's called just the main directorate. Uh, so, uh, but it is what's been written. It, 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 it is, to me, it's very plausible that the GRU decided to use this opportunity to basically uh, take over the whole mercenary, mercenary business in Russia. Uh, and uh, what I really do not understand is how Prigozhin and all these people around him, including Putkin, uh, decided that it's a good time to go and try and solve the issue and uh, how did they board all of them boarded one plane? I mean, right. It's carelessness and naivete uh, supreme, ruling supreme. Uh, I, I'm quite surprised. But uh, I'd say that uh, instead of that, Prigozhin should have kind of disappeared into the Caribbean under a false name or a false passport and should have continued sipping daiquiris until the end of his life. But uh, no, it seems like this is, these people are motivated by, you know, a lot of things I do not understand. It's like the Russian oligarchs. How much more money do they need? Do they not understand that now being seen as Putin's stooge is not exactly the greatest sort of PR assets? But still, they, they continue to batten through Western courts trying to prove that they are uh, white as snow. So, Precaution being so naive and ridiculous, frankly speaking, maybe one shouldn't be that surprised. Yeah, and it's it you can't escape like the, the the events leading up to this plane crash this week. I mean, the day before that video is released uh, of Prigozhin apparently in Africa, 
uh, making his first kind of a first uh, video appearance since the uh, the failed insurrection. We had him popping up in the Kremlin at that meeting of the of, of African leaders, um, and it looked very much for these two months like Rigozhin had pretty much survived this. Um, how how do you view all of that? All of the optics in the run up to this uh, this apparent assassination. Well, look, uh, I said it all the day of the rebellion that uh, Putin on that day lost a lot of prestige. And by the way, this is loss of prestige, or this prestige, this amount of prestige is irretrievable, even after. And by the way, uh, this is amount of prestige is irretrievable, even after this purported assassination. Uh, because what happened is that suddenly on a day of a major crisis in Russia, uh, the country in what is most important, not just the country, but the bureaucracy that runs it on behalf of Putin, all those hundreds of thousands, or probably millions of civil servants that are, that are the Putin regime, instead of the president commander-in-chief, uh, in a military uniform who has a one-minute appearance dispensing orders for the suppression of the rebellion, we saw a weird man giving them four or five minutes of a brief synopsis of Solzhenitsyn's The Red Wheel series of novels about the Russian Revolution. Then right. suddenly remembering that there is know, something going on in Russia. And after that, six or whatever, eight hours after that, this man who just this morning was saying, oh, this should be nipped in the butt. It is uh, a dagger in uh, in uh, uh, Russia's in Russia's back, and it is all treachery and and rebellion. Suddenly, says, oh, whether well, no, we 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 managed to fix it. You know, we we agreed on everything. Forget it. Go back home, drink a glass, go to sleep. This doesn't work like that. So it was a really weakened. And frankly, I think that these two months, when this sort of impression of Putin's behavior during the rebellion sunk in the minds of all these vice governors of oblasts and uh, directors of FSB regional offices and Rosnia, after vice presidents for Siberia, all this kind of fast army of corrupt bureaucrats that are running Russia food, uh, they learned the lesson. They understood at that time that, well, if the president says something, then wait until he says something else, which is not exactly a great way of running a dictatorship. So I suppose that Putin realized that he has to um, recoup his authority. But I think it is too little, too late. Uh, and I think that pretty much everyone in Russia understands that it is not an accident that Prigozhin uh, died. It wasn't the CIA that planted the bomb on his plane. Or wasn't the, it wasn't MI6 or the Mossad that launched the missile, if it was indeed a missile. Everyone understands where, where it's coming from. So does it really strengthen Putin? That's, that's the question. To me, it doesn't. Moreover, I think this particular act weakens because it is so grotesque 
it is so awesome. It is such a clear attempt to catch up, to, to try and hold the, what remains of the reputation, that it, it only highlights the weakness and disorientation. Yeah, and I'm going to want to dive in in the second half on the the, the the state of the Russian political elite and the Putin's grip on it in the second half. But before we get to that, there's a couple of things I wanted to drill into. Um, over these past two months, there's been several hypotheses about why Putin did not eliminate Prigozhin when it looked like Prigozhin had dodged this bullet and it survived this. One of the hypotheses was that Prigozhin simply has a lot of support inside the military, inside the security services, inside the elite, and inside the society, and that would have been problematic and dangerous for Putin to come at him. Um, another uh, hypothesis was that Prigozhin was still useful to the elite. Wagner has a lot of assets and activities in Africa, particularly, where Russia has a lot of interest. Um, they were pretty much moved out of Ukraine. Um, but in Africa, they certainly had a lot of assets, and that therefore Prigozhin was still still useful. Um, how do you view these things? Do you, did Prigozhin have support in the elite? And is this going to have repercussions now after the fact of Putin eliminating Prigozhin, or Putin apparently having eliminated Prigozhin? This rebellion wasn't about replacing Putin. It was about Prigozhin getting his way with the defense ministry of the general staff, getting the money he was promised but never paid, it wasn't the march on Moscow to overthrow Putin. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that uh, maybe my suspicion is that at least when he was marching on Moscow or sending his people to march on Moscow, he was convinced that he has some support in Moscow. I'm certain that an experienced person like Prigozhin wouldn't have undertaken such an endeavor if he didn't know that well, he has sufficient number of sympathizers in the capital. So I'm sure of that. But sympathizers that do what? Sympathizers that just sympathize, sympathizers that can probably have Putin's ear for 30 seconds and uh, tell him that, well, you know, Vigeny's doing a great job, give him more money. Or sympathizers that are prepared to go all the way. Right. For Prigo. I think it's rather the first, the, the former option than the last. Of course. That's the yeah. one. No, Go ahead. Yes, and your your second question was about uh, basically the um, the usefulness, right? And the yeah, why did he stay on and the and the African business things like that? Look, I think that, and that is something that I think went unnoticed. I think that by today, by the time of this alleged assassination. Uh, the uniqueness of the Wagner Group was gone already. The Russian companies, state companies, state-owned enterprise, are creating their own private military uh, military companies. Uh, the number of people that agree to fight for money to become mercenaries in Russia is still fairly sufficient. So I think that... Uh, the GRU and maybe quite a lot of other people decided, well, I mean, so, so, so what? Precaution shouldn't be the one who controls this market, controls the budget that's being dispensed. And I think that uh, his end was maybe, he, he, he was destined to be finished off 
uh, metaphorically, physically, that's a different question. But I think that in a country where being a mercenary is now a very honorable and sought-after job, uh, Prigozhin and Utkin could not remain unique. They were, they, they, Utkin created this in a different time, in a different historical circumstance. Today, it's gone. And I think that this whole mercenary business is going to be indeed controlled by the GRU, and it's going to be bureaucratized, and they're going to pump the Kremlin for money for that. But it's going to be completely different from what it used to be. It's going to be just just another sort of, if you wish, spetsnaz. Um, right. Yeah, no, I want to drill into a couple of those things because you raised, Costa, you raised some, some very interesting points. Number one, the fact that Wagner was created in a different time. It was in this time of hybrid warfare. It was this time when the Kremlin needed plausible deniability and it wanted to do things where it didn't have any obvious fingerprints on. Now the mask is off on all that stuff and nobody buys uh, or nobody was buying that, that Wagner was a, uh, a, a nominally private uh, ent enterprise. So I think you're, you're, you're right about that. In terms of the support in the elite, I was, I mean, I was thinking about this in the early days uh, of, of, of this, this whole drama. And if you look at the high level that were supposed allies of Prigozhin. Among them, if you, if you, there, there was Sotovikin, who's been under house arrest and who lost his job as head of the Air Force uh, right before, uh, right before the plane crash that killed, uh, killed Prigozhin. But then you had people like Kadyrov and, and Viktor Zolotov. These are people that are not going to turn on Putin. They're not going to go go against the bond. They may have, they may be allies of Prigozhin, but like you said, only to a point. Um, I was watching where all his krishas, you know, in the elite and how they were behaving, and they were all very, they were either silent or speaking out against him. Um, so this suggests to me, now, I'm not sure if you burrow deeper into the elite and deeper into the defense ministry and deeper into the armed force, deeper into the Siloviki and the security service, if there was any level of support for him, and if that support did indeed ex exist, whether it was going to evaporate, what 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 would you what would you think about that? Is there any lingering latent support for for this that's still around, or is does all this die with Prigozhin and Utkin? Prime, I like how you use this words that reveals that you're a rotten, decadent Western Democrat. Uh, there is <laughs> no such thing as support in in the meaning that you you in Russia because it's not a democracy because politics is not conducted publicly because there are very few debates so none about the direction the country and the war it's prosecuting uh, are taking so support is very fleeting uh no I would say as an old Soviet sort of Dyadushka Grand Bay, uh, that the idea of support in the political sense of the word is probably even weaker today than it used to be in the late days of the of Brezhnev's Politburo, which we know was a, was, was a place for debate after we read the Afghanistan uh, minutes of, of their meetings, which were published. So what I would say is that 
Surovikin was finished the moment he didn't show up, let us say, within a week or 10 days after the rebellion. Mm -hmm. Then I can tell you as a former army officer, if your commander is not there for, for no reason, for two weeks, then there is no command. Right. So he was finished off politically and bureaucratically uh, anyway, because of being absent, such a top officer, being absent without explanation. Uh, from his sort of uh, from his duties uh, for such a long time uh, was politically and administratively dead even before he was his demotion or his resignation was announced. Now that's number one. Number two, I think that um, the rebellion or the insurrection in February um, did show Putin that. And I think that Putin suspects that there were people that were secretly sympathizing with Prigozhin for different reasons. So the whole idea now is to nip any possible opposition to Putin, even the very timid one, in the bud. But what I think is paradoxical, those who in the future would like to oppose Putin for this or that reason will learn a lesson if they even half small. Never trust Putin. He's not going to do a deal with you, or uh, rather, any deal he does with you is not a deal. Mm -hmm. And second, once you started, go go all the way. I mean, if I may rephrase the old Eagle song, or rather, use it, take it to the limit one more time. Mm -hmm. But that's very much sort of a problem today, because you're going to be dead. So you'd rather try. To take it to the limit because anyway the outcome is clear so maybe you risk it it'll be alive and this is i think something that will eventually play out in russia mm. in putin's right because in the end you have an aging leader who is prosecuting not the most popular and what is most important not the most successful war. I'd say that unless the, the, the West and Ukraine become really weak need and there is some kind of quote-unquote peace negotiation within the next six, eight, nine months, if it, if it doesn't happen, then Putin has an issue because the war is not going the way it should go from the point here of the Kremlin. Putin doggedly stays on and blocks the way of advancement, the way of corruption, the way of robbing Russia blind to a lot of young, hungry wolves. Mm -hmm. Probably not so young, but still younger than Putin. So this is not a way to run a dictatorship. And exactly because Putin, I think, is he, he doesn't understand that this is that, that that he's in a very dangerous spot. Eventually, this thing is going to explode. Probably not tomorrow, but I think that Prigozhin and his rebellion uh, will serve as an example and a lesson. As for the people, that's one thing I want to say. As for the Russian people, here we've seen an interesting thing. 
precaution until the rebellion, until the march in Moscow, was not present on Russia's state tower. But he was very actively present on Russian social media, especially mm-hmm. Telegram. So the society um, was, to some extent, the, the majority of people were not cognizant of the existence of Prigozhin, but the politically active part, and the politically active part very frequently supports the wall. Those who are on Telegram and other social media, they knew who Prigozhin was, and they support. Now, how is going to play out with Putin, who is always attuned to public opinion? We'll see. I'm absolutely certain that the fact that the GRU, or whatever it's called now, the GU, I think it's called, uh, suddenly became so active in uh, consolidating command of all the masters. Uh, that's a sign that Putin decided that this kind of attractive amateurism, adventurism of people like Prigozhin, who are nobodies who suddenly become somebody, became somebodies, that should be eliminated. It should all be put under state control. It should all be commanded from one center. They, these people should not become popular heroes without Putin's approval or approval stamp. We'll see how that plays out because because this is this is a very um, interesting moment uh, for this whole sort of uh, business of bureaucratizing up. Yeah, a lot of things are in flux right now. Um, and one of the things, and you just you just you just touched on it before we move into the second half, where I really would do want to drill down into the, the 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 state of the elite right now. But before we do that, you kind of raised the, the issue that this 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 type of model of conducting foreign affairs is over. This what I like to call Putin's venture capital foreign policy. The use of these nominally private actors, be it Wagner or the Internet Research Agency. And you seem to be suggesting that this is over. This is all going to be taken over by the state in one way or the other. There is another model for this, and that is that these th- some of these things be placed in the hands of more reliable actors. I've seen in the Russian press, for example, Yuri Kovalchuk's name has been batted about as somebody that could potentially take over Prigozhin's assets. Do you think that is possible, or do you think they're going to throw out this model completely now? I don't know about Kovalchuk. Um, you know, if you think that um, you can just take it over as you take over the management of your, you know, um, uh, your corner either. Uh, I mean, that's that, that's a wrong note. Brigadier was in it because he had um, an adventurous spirit, because he did time in jail, uh, because he had very strange, weird mind and inclination. You know, imagine someone who went from writing quirky but you know, actually nice children's book for his children to becoming a murderous mercenary chief. Uh, I should say that being so weird and so charismatic is good for running a mercenary outfit. And here I switch off my, you know, moral compass. If we look at it purely pragmatically, then if you want to have an inspired mercenary band, 
you do not only pay these people money, you also, well, make it a lifetime occupation for a lot of people whose lifetime passed in a very dreary circumstance. Now, can Yuri Kovalchuk, uh, a, well, Putin's banker, a multi-billionaire, uh, someone who we don't know much about, frankly speaking, but was definitely not particularly quirky, adventurous, uh, or... But Putin trusts him, but he's close to... Putin. Yes, yes, but the thing is that once you start bureaucratizing this, it becomes just part of the Russian army. Mm. Just yeah. becomes part of the defense ministry playing. Just become, becomes part of, you know, Kovalchuk disbursing uh, sums from his Russia bank uh, to, well, this particular project. It will become, you know, it will become a project in the world that's come up. And this means that it will become part of the Putin machine. And I think that the effectiveness of the Wagner Group was exactly in this, well, if you wish, independence and um, ability to go an extra mile. And again, I just, I speak about it as if it is a business. It was some extent a business. But once you make it part of this huge corporation, um, it loses. And because of that, I think, Putin's famous pension for centralizing and for over-insuring against any possible risks uh, will touch upon this whole mercenary business. And of course, the, uh, the former GRU, which is now GU, um, is also very astute and sells itself to Putin as, well, you know what? We'll make it like a huge spirit. But just right. give us a couple of brilliant rubles. Right. And we're going to use them well. So, uh, frankly, I think we'll see an increase in notional number of mercenaries, but it essentially will be a squabble again, yeah. a squabble for budgets and... Putin's benevolent. Right. So it'll it'll become part of the Putin machine. And I like that formulation. You use the Putin machine because that's what I want to look at in the second half. And that's a good way to segue. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at the broader context that the whole Wagner drama emerged, the complicated and opaque Kremlinology of the Russian elite since Putin launched his war of aggression in Ukraine. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power of Brothers podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host, my name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from across the Atlantic in Lithuania's enchanting capital city of Vilnius is my old friend Konstantin Petty, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle, the former director of the BBC's Russian service, and a newly minted foreign agent in the eyes of Vladimir Putin. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and in. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical pop products at powervertical.org. You can follow us on the website, formerly known as the Twitter, at Power Vertical. You can also follow us on Blue Sky and on Threads at Power Vertical. So 
So, Kostya, you and I actually appeared on the same program on Deutsche Welle this week. And in your segment, which aired just before mine, you said the killing of Prigozhin, quote, doesn't end the story of weakness. In fact, I agree with you, and I put it this way in my segment. I said, by killing Prigozhin, Putin dealt with the proximate threat, but not the underlying threat. Um, what I'm driving at here is that the elite, since the invasion of Ukraine, has been divided between hawks who want nothing short of a military parade on the Nishatik, which is not happening, and kleptocrats who want to go back to the world as it was before February 2022, which is also not happening, which means exactly nobody is happy. And that, that, that situation is not going away. Let's drill into some stuff you kind of raised in the earlier part of the program, Kostya. How do you view Putin's position at this point? You obviously think he is weak. Um, does eliminating Prigozhin, Ukin, and much of the Wagner leadership solve the problem? Or was, does this just kick the can down the road? I think I know what you think about this, but let's, let, let's, let's unpack it all. Well, look, I do think that the can is kicked down the road, probably a significant distance. But the fact that at the moment of the rebellion, Putin behaved the way he behaved is not going to go away. In Russia, in the Russian language, there's a fairly recent expression um, sounding like well, I'll repeat it. Well, in the Russian language, there is a well relatively new expression when you say I can't unsee meaning that once you saw something, you can't forget it. And this is this is the truth about Putin. That's at the, the crucial moment, he showed himself to be indecisive, weak, and frankly speaking, quite weary. Now, whether the elimination of precaution will solve the issue, no, because you can't unsee it. It's coming mean, that this is fine, but um, you can't run a regime, especially, by the way, during the war, on pure fear. A, the part of such regimes, Putin's is a great example, of course, uh, are usually run on this kind of mixture of corruption slash loyalty plus fear. I, as long as you're loyal, you're allowed to be corrupt. If you suddenly become disloyal, then you're going to go to all the way to, to, the, to jail or you'll be eliminated. Now, at the time of war, um, running on now at the time of war, corruption. Oh, well, it's possible. Russia still exports a lot more than it is, but the the pie shrinks. Uh, the price of mistakes, including for the military and for the security service, becomes high because of the war. And so, what you have, you have now someone who showed himself to be weak suddenly avenging this sort of humiliation. Right. But he didn't do it straight away. That means that in the eyes of many, he will remain weak. Moreover, mm -hmm. he will remain, mm, how to put it? I think the smarter people at the top will realize that it's not also very wise. Because once we make peace with Prigorsen, we have no doubt, or at least we have no grounds for that that Prigozhin was sticking to his side of the deal. 
Look, look, we have no doubts, or at least we have no grounds to doubt, that Prigozhin stuck to his side of the deal with Putin from June. So why leave it? Well, he was in a rush. He was supposed to be out of the country. Yes. And I think his elimination proves, I mean, if you were living in a communal apartment in the Soviet days, I would have said that such an action means that you want to prove that you are strong. Once you want to prove that you are strong, you're weak. Mm -hmm. To remember Margaret Thatcher, if you have to say you're a lady, you're not. <laughs> and this is exactly what happened to Putin. So I think that uh, his um, to be seen as strong and avenging, his desire to be Al Capone, if you will, uh, is not going to be, it's not going to lead to everyone say Yavol and the bang. Uh, moral, um, if indeed Rikorshin was, uh, and, and, and other people were killed by a missile launched by a, 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 a substitute missile launched from a battery. Well, maybe actually really one of those four batteries that guide Putin's Valdai residence. Then I say from the point of view of these hundreds of thousands of millions of civil servants, FS Bashniki uh, and civilians and so forth, it's really too much. Let me put it cynically. If precaution suddenly died in a car crash, or in an airline, an airplane exit, okay, people would have said, we'll have understood, oh well, we know how it happened, okay, let's go on with our lives. But this, using essentially the army to publicly execute your enemy, including quite a few other, is too much. You do not use state assets for that. The moment you do it, you stop being a politician and you become just a, you know, just a mafia boss with an iron torturing someone. And, and interestingly enough to me, I mean, and that is for someone who lived in the 1990s in Russia, Putin suddenly made the full circle and from a politician, uh, political leader, he went all the way to becoming this nearly caricature mafioso from the 1990s and telling Russia all the time he's saving it from the 90s. But he's a mafioso with nuclear. That's true. Yeah, though, as somebody that lived in Russia in the 90s, too, I've always seen Putin in that, in, in, and that's where he cut his teeth politically in Petersburg in the 90s, so it doesn't surprise me if he's behaving like a mafia boss, because I think he's always behaved like a mafia boss, but what you're saying now is that the mask has come off. Yeah, it's, you know, it's mask, it, 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 it's now maximum mafia with a nuclear weapon. And the, and, and the bureaucracy, which lives according to rules and regulations in such dictatorship, is very, very sensitive to style. You don't do certain things even if you are a dictator. And I think that Putin really, really smashed the style book. And I don't think, or torn it. And I don't think you can glue it back together. Yeah, no, Kossi, you're hitting on something that I've been kind of playing with 
in, in, in recent years, and that's kind of the change in Putin's outward leadership style. If you look at Putin in the first two terms, 2000 to 2008, I kind of looked at that elite the same way I looked at the Brezhnevian. Putin was the front man for kind of a collective leadership effect. Upon returning to the Kremlin in 20, and, and that old model was based not so much on fear, but on passive acquiescence in the public um, and on the ability to enrich yourself in the elite. The latter model is moving away from a Brezhnevian and moving closer to a single leader style model like a, a Stalin, which is not based so much on passive acquiescence, but it's based more on um, But Putin isn't going all the way with the fear. He didn't hang Prigozhin on Red Square. He 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 bumped him off with a, apparently a surface-to-air missile in a, in an aircraft. Um. So so do you? How does this shift in the? How do you think the the bureaucracy will react to this shift? And do you think I'm accurately characterized? Well, I think more or less you actually you. Well, I think you are characterizing it accurately. Uh, I do think that uh, Putin's. Uh, uh, Putin's attitude really, really seriously changed after he handed the reins notionally to Medvedev and became prime minister. And then uh, protests in Moscow started in 2011, continuing through to 2012. Uh, I think at that time he realized that this consensus, um, dictatorship of, of consensus in which uh, the main social contract is that the society is allowed to get rich, or at least more or less affluent, uh, in exchange for not meddling in politics, that this, this contract doesn't work. Because in his mind, all those people that protested against him were using and uh, tweeting about, you know, Donald Putin and so forth. They were ungrateful, who did not appreciate the fact that he, Putin, gave them this prosperity. He, Putin, gave them the chance to buy the iPhones on which they were tapping all this kind of uh, demands to him. And I think that at that moment he realized that this idea that you can run this, whatever, Singapore-style, for lack of better comparison, a dictatorship with just people getting richer and richer and richer and, I know, and, and, uh, and the, the, the leadership continuing to lead because no one's interested in politics and everyone's interested in the new house or the new plasma screen, the new whatever, uh, that it doesn't work. And since then, yes, it was constant, sometimes quick, sometimes slow, sometimes quick movement uh, shift towards modern mass centralization, modern more dictatorship. And in the other, it's very logical. How the so-called elite will react to that? I think that a, you do not expect any kind of things happening tomorrow, but uh, there are issues here. Uh, first of all, if 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 uh, Putin can do this to you know Prigozhin, who was fairly high up in the informal hierarchy, then a lot of other people will be thinking, mm, well, you know, it's not stable anymore. That's number one. Number two. Uh, what about generation change? Putin is not doing anything to basically entice the uh, the ruling class, the bureaucracy ruling clique, for that matter, uh, 
to tease it with, you know, propositions of something new. Because of the war, because of the nature of the regime, which their entrenched interests and disinterests are to some extent immovable. Yes, his best friend and colleagues, the closest, the the in the, the in crowd. Yes, their children already occupy positions of power. But does everyone else like it? Probably not. And I think that another issue is that, of course, everything is happening against the back of the war, which is not well, which is not going catastrophically for Russia, but which is also not going well. So I'd say that um, the that, that, that doubts about the future must be planted already and planted by the way quite firmly in the minds of quite well. Will they find, will someone act? We don't know. But eventually, I think, something is going to give. Uh, there, for, for such systems, usually need an external job for forces inside them to start sort of uh, to, 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 to start and materialize, show themselves. But I think that this moment is probably closer now with the whole Prigozhin uh, yeah. uh, business with Prigozhin station than it was in the few months. Yeah, no, as you were talking, Kostya, I was thinking of the UCLA professor Daniel Treisman's concept of spin democracies and, I'm sorry, spin dictatorships and fear dictatorships. Um, 2000 to 2008, Putin was running a spin dictatorship, a dictatorship based on spin and consensus. Um, after that, it went to a fear dictatorship. And Treisman makes the accurate point that spin dictatorships can become fear dictatorships, but fear dictatorships tend not to go back to being spin dictatorships. So Putin doesn't really have a lot of places to go. Um, you also uh, correctly pointed out 2011 to 2014 as the decisive point when this changed, I see another point coming in 2022 with the invasion of Ukraine, which really ripped open this schism in the elite between those who put a primacy on imperialism and want the conquest of Ukraine and those who put a primacy on kleptocracy and want to go back to the world as it was before. Neither of those two factions are happy right now, and that doesn't bode well for Putin going forward. I'm looking at the clock cost here. We're bumping up against the end. Any last thoughts before we wrap it up for this week? Uh, well, first of all, I agree with Daniel Trace. Putin can't go back. Uh, maybe he doesn't want to go back, but even if he wanted to, he can't go back because fear is something that people remember. Uh, that's one. Secondly, I think that a law, really a law, will depend, will depend on... Uh, uh, the situation at the front, on uh, Ukraine being able to resist Russia, Ukraine being able to inflict uh, real losses on the uh, Russian forces, and by doing that, uh, uh, sowing even more seeds of doubt in the Kremlin and uh, buildings around it. That's that's an extremely important. And thirdly, we have to remember that the Russian society's dollar. Uh, in my estimation, and I think Levada Center agrees with my, you know, humble assessment, uh, about 60% of Russians, probably even more, basically disregard all this business of the war and the whole politics thing. Essentially, it is a society without citizens in a political It is a society where people either do not know or prefer not to know, which is even more 
So how do such countries channel? I think that the external factor here is extremely important. And I think that for lack of wide sort of democratic uh, movement in Russia, uh, the interest of the West should be actually, well, trying to, you know, support those who want to go back to the kleptocracy because these people will be interested in making a deal. And by the way, they will occupy a fairly weak position. And this deal could be done very much in favor of Ukraine and in favor of the West in such circumstances, which in the end may turn out to be also in favor of Russia when the kleptocrats will go. But I'd say that um, it is not the moment to imagine that because the war is going as it is, one has to say, oh, let's give peace a chance. No, peace will not hold in such circumstances. This is a system in crisis, and the, every time Putin shouts, I'm strong, I want to reply, no, sorry, I do not believe you. All right. Well, on that note, I'm looking at the clock. It's, uh, it's we're, we're bumping up at the end. That's all we have time for today. So we shall wrap it up. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UCM McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me for Across the Atlantic in Lithuania's enchanting capital city, Vilnius, has been my old friend Konstantin Eckert, a columnist in Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle, a former director of the BBC's Russian service, and a newly minted foreign agent. Austria, thanks for the enlightening discussion in making us all a whole lot harder. Brian, thank you very much. Always a thank pleasure you. to speak to you. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Zachary Bell is ably filling in for Lance League from the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. Zachary also handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you to subscribe to the Power of the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, to the crowd, and tune in. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power of the blog, and access all Power of the products at powervertical.org. You can follow us on the website, formerly known as Twitter, at Power Vertical. You can also follow us on Blue Sky and on Threads at Power Vertical. Power Vertical podcast will take a brief hiatus next week as I will be traveling, but we will be back in action in September. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 